we have spent several weeks in the book of Hebrews, months even. But we are now getting to the portion of the book that basically takes everything that we've learned to this point and puts it to feet. It's essentially going to take all the information, all of the, the whole theme of the book is that Jesus is better than anything that you can do in your life. And you say, well, okay, but you can't do Jesus and you can do stuff. You can do activities, you can do things. But Jesus is a person. Jesus is salvation, but he is also the creator and he's also the author and the finisher of our faith. And so our faith was not meant to stop on the day we were born. It wasn't something that we were given. Now, if you stopped maturing on the day that you were, conce- that you were brought forth from the womb, Everyone would look at you and go, wow, there's something wrong with that baby. Because babies are born to grow, they're born to learn, they're born to uh, mature. And if we don't mature physically, then everybody would look at us and go, there's something wrong with that, that child or that person. So why do we think that it's any different when it comes to being born again as a Christian? As we trust and trust our lives to Jesus, and as we give our our heart and our will over to him, he transforms what we do with our time. He transforms the purpose for our existence. And so in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 11, we spent two, I think probably three weeks on it. Because in it, there is so much about faith. Now, if you were raised like me, you were raised as a doer. And so when you hear people talk about trusting the Lord, all you think of is somebody sitting in their house and praying but never do anything about it. Faith is a crutch for people that can't do anything on their own. Uh, And I would submit to you that faith is actually many times harder than just doing things on your own because you're trusting in someone that's allowed to speak into your life, God himself, who you can't see. And so by faith, we looked at in chapter 11, verse 33, we looked at how by faith... um, Let's see, no, verse 32. And what more shall I say, he writes, for the time would fail for me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. These men who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again. So if all that in mind, by faith things happen, and it causes us, faith, it causes us to move and to do. Uh, When Jesus said, uh, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all the things that I've taught you, he said, I am with you through that. So by faith, he's with us, and yet he's called us to do things in conjunction with what he's already doing on earth. So by faith, these individuals he spoke about here, and he lists off all these things that that happen. These are not just Bible stories. These are men and women who live by faith, and these things happen in their lives and everyone else saw that they were trusting in something they couldn't see, that they were anchored to something that was keeping them from being moved in the midst of trials and tribulations and fearful situations. And it says they experienced victory and deliverance. Now, I don't know about you guys, 
But that's the kind of faith I, I want. But then there's the flip side of the coin, because there's a whole realm of what I would call heretical teaching that says if you believe God, everything will go great. But the problem with that is that it didn't always go great. Jesus, the Son of God himself, kneeled down in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was pressed down upon by the tribulation he was getting ready to take on. He was getting ready to be brutally murdered and judged on the cross. And as he prayed, he said, Father, if there's any way else for people to be saved from their sins, then let, me, let this cup of your wrath pass, and I not have to take on this punishment. But nonetheless, my will be done, or excuse me, thy will be done. And so, as a result of his faith-filled prayer, God said, no, you, you have to go to the cross. So it, for him, it meant death to follow the will of God. And so others, by faith, they persevered through trials, some even to death. And if we look at the second part of uh, verse 35, it says, others were tortured. Remember, the key theme of this chapter is by faith. Now, I don't know about you guys, but by faith, I don't desire to be tortured. Actually, by anything, I don't desire to be tortured. He says, by faith, others trusting God. This is the good, good father we just sang about. Trusting God, they were tortured. But they were tortured because they didn't accept deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. People today who trust in Jesus in other parts of the world are told, if you renounce your faith in Jesus... We'll let you go free. We won't behead you. And they go, no, I'm not going to do it because this is the person that saved my soul. He is the one I live for now. Paul the apostle wrote, for me to live is Christ, but actually to die is actually gain. To live, I let the Son of God live through me in every one of my moments, but to die is even better because I don't have to go through tribulation anymore. Once I breathe my last breath, I'm in the presence of God. Which one? And Paul was torn between two worlds. He, he knew that he had a purpose and a calling here until God let him breathe his last breath. But he knew also that if he were to die and breathe his last breath and leave everybody behind, he would be in the presence of God himself. So that to die for him was total gain. It was the best thing, though the world would call it the worst thing. So others by faith experienced these kinds of things. They were stoned, verse 37 says. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. In God's eyes, the world was not worthy of such people that would trust Him with such real faith. And so... They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. They were, the Bible calls Christians the off-scouring of the world. The world looks at Christians and they go, those people are keeping us from progressing as individual societies. You guys are hindering us from becoming all that mankind could be. But I would submit to you that mankind at its very best, even if we were all to work together, we would reject God together because we would find our strength and our own ability to build our way to God. That's what happened at the Tower of Babel in Genesis. They, they all worked together towards 
oneness, towards unity. But in order to do that, they worked together to build this big tower that was actually a worship place under the heavens. It wasn't what Led Zeppelin said. It wasn't a stairway to heaven. It wasn't. It was actually a stairway to get up high enough and worship the heavens. And so with that in mind, these people that follow Jesus by faith, we are looked at of those who are hindering society from becoming all that it could be. Ironically, we could really become all that we were meant to be if we were all focused on pleasing and looking unto Jesus, the creator, the one who gives life. He breathes breath into our bodies. So we are also partakers of these promises. Verse 39, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, those that were victorious and those that experienced triumph or trials and tribulation, even death, they obtained a good testimony through faith. They did not receive the promise God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect or mature apart from us. So therefore, in light of chapter 11, all these people of faith, chapter 12 goes on to say, therefore, and I read all of that to you because it was just two weeks ago when we read the last part of chapter 11 and studied it. And when the Bible says, therefore, in a verse, you can't just start there and keep reading because it's in context of what he's already said. If someone's teaching you something and they say, therefore, in light of what I've just told you, here's the response. Christianity should be the reaction that we have to what God has already done for us. Christianity is not about what we can do for God because he needs us. God created the heavens and the earth. I just read it this morning in Genesis 1. He created the heavens and the earth without any of my help. He did. He formed each one of us in our mother's womb without us helping. And really, if you got a realistic set of parents, they were sitting there going, how does that even happen? You know, I remember we left the hospital with Lucy, our first. And as we're leading the hospital, first of all, we're thinking, is this good medical practice for them to just let us leave? Like, we've never had one of these things before. I can't believe they're just letting us walk out. But then the other side of it is, we walked into the hospital. My wife is very pregnant, and we have this child inside the womb, and we're going to get the child outside of the womb. And then as we leave, the child is now outside of the womb, and we're like, how did that happen? Ten months ago, we had no child. We had no conception. None of this. And the mystery is that God forms us in our mother's womb. It's mysterious. There's no hands in there. There's no things. There's not like a printer printing out a person. There's not, it, God creates. And he uses everything he's already set in place. So all that to say, therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So there's a lot there. So in light of all these testimonies of God's faithfulness in the lives of those who would put their trust in him and then act accordingly, he says, therefore, we also, let's not 
focus our faith on what used to be, what's God want to do today? So he says, therefore, we also are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, the first time I read this passage, I, I was surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And I, I pictured my place on earth as like an arena, like the Superdome. It used to be the TWA Dome when I was a kid, and we, we took our marching band up there, and we played in the TWA Dome. It was like the biggest show of the year. I was a marching band kid, and we, we played music, and we went up there, and it was like, we're going to the Dome, and there was so much excitement. But it, there was thousands, probably tens of thousands of seats, and there was very few people in there because, <laughs> you know, it's not a football game. I mean, apparently when you get in for free to go to the TWA Dome, it's not worth way as, as nearly as much as when you can pay 150 bucks a ticket to go watch a bunch of people you don't know, apparently. But we're in there, we're playing music, and, and so I picture this, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, a bunch of people watching us walk by faith. And that's where some people get the idea that, that people in heaven are actually watching us. I would submit to you that if I went to heaven and then had to watch this stuff, it would be kind of disappointing. Why are we watching them? We're in the presence of God. They're still going through all the stuff that we know is hard. It would be sad. We'd be watching people go through hardships. So, but the word there, witnesses, does not actually mean they're watching us. It means that what they experienced and lived through and the fruit of their life written down in the Old Testament bears witness to us that God can see us through as he did for them. God's past faithfulness is actually encouragement for us to trust in his present faithfulness to us. And so Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says that the things that were written before are actually for our comfort and patience to instruct us so that we might have hope. We read the Old Testament not to dwell on it, but to see God's faithfulness in the lives of those who actually trusted him. And the word patience there means endurance. And he says, we have need of endurance. So if you look at chapter 10, where he ended in verse 36, it actually says there, can't find it. They should put numbers in here so it's easier to find. Oh, there they are. He says in verse 35, Do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. He's already told these Hebrew Christians, you have need of endurance. How many of you guys have run cross country? Yeah, not me. But your coach says what? You have need of endurance. So what does he do? He tell you to go home and think about endurance and pray for it? They say, get out there and run every day. The soccer team, when I was in high school, they just started a soccer team at Farmington back in early 2000s. And when they did that, they said, we're going to have a soccer team. Everybody's like, I want to play. I played City League. Let's do this. They go, okay. Got to run three miles to the Civic Center every morning. I'm out. I wanted to play soccer. I don't want to run. I, if I wanted to run, I'd run across country. I don't want to. So, but you've got to run up and down that field about a gajillion times per game. And you've got to be able to kick a ball afterwards. I could run up and down the field, but if you want me to control my legs and kick a ball, it ain't happening. So you have need of endurance. So what do we do for endurance? We work out. We run. And I've seen many of you 
running up and down 21. Maybe not yet, but high school does, right? They get Everybody runs up and down this valley, which I think is the most beautiful place if you're going to run somewhere. Number one, it's flat. That's nice. But number two, you get to see the mountains and the hills and not think about the fact that you want to throw up. That's what I want to do when I'm running. But for endurance, many times, especially in the games that Paul's referring to here, Paul's a big sports guy. He said if they wanted endurance, they would actually put weights on their ankles and run with those. Now, weights are great training things, right? We put them on, we run with them, that we run places we would never run for cross country so that when we run the 3.1 during the actual race, no biggie. It's just like what I do every day. But the problem is, is that sometimes as Christians, God places things in our lives to train us so that we can grow in endurance. And then when he calls us to actually go do something, we don't take the weights off and run the race. We keep carrying the weights. We keep taking the training equipment with us. If you know anything about running, carrying stuff is not a good idea. We, we, we try to run with a backpack full of rocks. What's the backpack full of rocks? Well, sometimes it's past guilt. Sometimes it's past shame. Sometimes it's things that God's forgiven us of, and yet we haven't said, okay, Lord, I'm giving it to you. You've forgiven me. I'm not going to think about it anymore. And we keep bringing it back up. I'd love to serve God. I'd love to do this thing. I'd love to trust you, Lord. But what about this thing in my past? And he's saying, I've already forgotten about it. Why are you carrying it around? Take the backpack of rocks off. Take away the weight. Take away the sin. So the weight isn't necessarily sin. Weight can be the things that God's placed in our lives to train us. And he says, okay, now run the race. Take the weights off. And so he says, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Those witnesses should be encouragement for us to move forward. And if we're going to move forward, we need to lay aside the weight. We need to lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. Sin will hinder you every day of your life. Jesus died on the cross to save you from sin. Why would you sin more? Now, we will always have this struggle with sin. Until the day that we see Jesus face to face, there will be temptation, there will be failure. But the idea is not to wallow in it, not to make it our regular practice, but to repent of that sin and move forward, trusting that those sins are forgiven. 1 John 1, 9, he's, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness, but we have to confess it, we need to repent of it, we need to turn away from it, and go the other direction. So if there is sin in your life, and you're constantly being defeated by it, then it's time to cut it off. Jesus said uh, to his disciples, he says, if, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, I said that one time, and I always tell this story, but when we were at Bobby Powell's one night, somebody came up from the the Granite House, or Lone Pine. And we had people wander in all the time. And it was great because they would ask questions and I would answer them. And this one lady goes, because uh, I was teaching Mark and I read that passage where he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And she goes, that's suicide. And I said, well, not quite, but kind of. Because uh, the reality is, is, if we cut off every member that caused us to sin, we'd be, we, we would all be like 
You ever see uh, that movie, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? I've, I've got another leg. You know, he gets his limbs cut off. He says, get back over here. I could still fight. I've got teeth, you know. If you haven't seen them, that, that's lost on you. It's British humor. It's dry. I get it. But the idea is, uh, actually, that is suicide. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. That's death to your own plans. That's death to your own will. That's life as you say, Lord, I, I don't want to do my will anymore. I want to do what you want me to do. But we're always so afraid of that because we have to give up things for that. Um, we're afraid of what we might lose if we give our life completely over to Jesus. But I am a testimony. Maybe many of you don't know my story, but I was willing, finally, when I realized all the junk that I'd heaped up in my life, when I finally gave it all over to the Lord, I was set free. The stuff that I owned, owned me. The opinions that I was a slave to, they ruled my life, and I was just tired of it. But Jesus came in and said, I came to set you free. Free from man's opinion, free from being owned, free from guilt and shame, because I had quite a bit. And he set me free, and at that point I got to start actually truly living. And he wants to do that for all of us. But we have to be willing. Jesus will cleanse you. Don't get me wrong, he does it all. But sometimes his cleansing in us means that we have to let go of some stuff. And I'm not talking about everything. There are very few people that Jesus looks at and says, I want you to go sell all your stuff and take the money and feed the poor. There was a, a young man that said, how may I inherit eternal life? And Jesus saw his heart, saw the thing that was his idol. He said, I want you to take all that you own and sell it and give the money to the poor. And that young man who had asked the question, got an answer, didn't like the answer and said, can't do it. And he walked away sad. We don't know where he ended up with the Lord. But I know that the one thing that he, Jesus told him very specifically, this is the thing I want you to give up, and he wouldn't do it. For you and I, it might be something totally different. For you and I, it might be something like stop, get off the internet at a certain time at night. That's, that's ensnaring you. Give it up. Or stop watching the TV shows. Or stop going to places that you're going. I remember very distinctly, my thing was drinking, one of my things. And I was addicted to alcohol, and I couldn't just drink one. And, and I will tell you, by the way, that the Bible actually says, uh, it doesn't say anything about you cannot drink a bush light. It doesn't. But it does con it condemn drink, uh, drunkenness. And for me, I couldn't stop at one bush light, or Pabst Blue Ribbon, or whatever you want to have. I couldn't stop, and the Lord, I remember very distinctly, no one at the Christian church said, you got to quit drinking. No one. They said, read the Word of God, get to know Jesus, see what He wants for you. And I remember reading Ephesians 5, thinking, it's all about marriage. And then I saw a couple of amazing verses in there that said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And I'd been praying, Lord, all these men around me, that they're just oozing with your Word. What why can't I remember? Why can't these things flow from me like they are from them? I want to be a blessing. I want to know your word. I want to honor you with my life. And he said, and he just showed me that I was a glass and I was so full of alcohol that I couldn't take in any of him. There was no room. So for me, just like that young man, he said, get rid of the booze. And I said, okay, 
and I dumped it all out. I was done. Haven't had a drop since. It's been 13 years. Best day that ever happened in my life because all of a sudden I had this capacity. And for you, it might be something totally different. I don't know what it is, but Jesus does, and he wants to set you free from sin. Let him. (laughs) It'll be the best day of your life. So he says, lay aside sin and look to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, what's that mean? Does that mean looking at a picture of him on the wall? Well, the word there, to look to, means to trust. Any relationship worth its salt is built on trust. It's easy to gain, harder to get back after you lost it. And so trust is the crux of it. And I was going to tell a whole story about Samson, excuse me, uh, David and Goliath, and I still will, but here we get into verse 2 where he says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he's the beginner. He's the one that pursues us. He's the author of faith, and he's the one that gives it to us. But he's also the one that will finish it. He who began a good work in you will also be able to be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so he's the author. He's the finisher. But it also says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So you've often, maybe some of you have heard it said that it wasn't actually the nails that held Jesus to the cross, but it was his love for us. And I would say that it was, because no one dies for people they don't love. No one goes off uh, and joins the military because they don't love what they're fighting for. No man goes to battle for a wife he can't stand. It just doesn't happen. Uh, But people that have someone they love, when that person that they love gets threatened, is willing to do anything to take care of the one that's threatening them or even harming them. And so Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, I would submit to you that's you and I in a relationship with his father, he endured the cross But he, at the same time, despised the shame. He was humiliated. The the root word for humble is humiliation. I don't know about you guys, but I hate being humiliated. I don't like being exposed. But Jesus, in every sense of the word, was humiliated. When they mocked him and scourged him and took the cat of nine tails and ripped his flesh open, when, when they spit on him and they... They shoved a crown on his head of thorns. He was being humiliated, and he never once said stop it or called them jerks or anything. He didn't respond to his enemies like you and I would. He he didn't respond at all. It says in Isaiah 53 that as a sheep led to the slaughter, he was silent. That's that word trust. He was looking to his father and trust knowing that his life was in the hands of his father. And as he trusted him, he willingly laid down his life, knowing that that wasn't the end. Knowing that the joy was us trusting in the father, seeing the father faithful in his life, and then him raising to new life, physically raising from the dead. He knew that his death wasn't the last word, but that his life 
would be for eternity. So since he knew his life was going to be for eternity, he didn't live just for the now. He lived for the then. And so it says there that he's the author and the finisher of our faith. So I would submit to you that he's the champion. He's the first one. He was the first one to rise from the dead according to the power of the Spirit. He was our champion. Now, maybe you don't know what a champion is. And guys, many of us want to be the champion for someone else. But the champion of the world is like Goliath. You know the story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath um, met because the Israelites were getting ready to battle the Philistines. And as they came to this valley, there was a big, huge plain in the middle of, of these two risen hills. And on one side you have the Philistines, and on the other side you have God's people, the Israelites. The Israelites were there, and they knew they were supposed to fight the Philistines, but there was a, a man, a very tall stature, kind of like Harry and the Hendersons from the 80s, but huge with a, a, a spear the size of a beam and a shield, and he was just a big, loud, mean, scary dude. And he came out and he said, Israel, why do we all need to fight? Why don't you send out your best guy and I'll fight him? And if you come out and I fight against your one guy, we won't all have to kill each other, essentially. I'll be their champion, you send out your champion, and when we battle, whatever individual dies, that nation will serve the other. And he defied the army of the living God. He blasphemed against God. And he did this for days. How many of you guys are mouthers? You don't have to raise your hands. I know who you are. But they were mouthing each other. And they were like two high school basketball teams. You know, the ones that mouth each other outwardly, not just in their groups. And as they argued, and as they, uh, Goliath would come out every day, you know what the Israelites did? The people of God, they didn't mouth back. They got in their tents and they kind of huddled and shuddered because this dude was huge. Even King Saul, who was a head above all the other people that followed him, he didn't go out there and fight him. Of all people, their leader, he should have been willing. But he didn't. So David, a young shepherd boy, comes out of the field. His dad tells him, why don't you go take some food to your brothers? They're in, they're in war. So David, just a little shepherd boy, the youngest, does what his dad says, goes out to the battle line, takes the food to his brothers, and then while he's there, Goliath steps up and starts mouthing. And David got infuriated. He got mad. And he said, how dare this uncircumcised Philistine start mouthing my God? He wasn't worried about his people getting mouthed. They probably deserved to be. He was concerned that the, the name of God was being blasphemed by this big fool. And so he said, I'll go fight him. And of course, everybody's like, oh, I don't know if you're going to be able to do anything about it. He said, look, I'm not going out there in my own strength. I'm trusting that if God wants me to defeat him, he'll help me do it. And so he went out there and he fought Goliath. But he didn't fight like Goliath did. Goliath came out with brute strength. Goliath came out with a big stinking beam of a, a spear. 
He, he didn't go out and go hand-to-hand because he knew he couldn't beat him. And there's a whole book that's called uh, David and Goliath, and it's uh, written by Malcolm Gladwell. If you get to take a chance to read it, if you're a reader, uh, check it out. It's, it's kind of a different perspective. But he implied that when David went out, he was trusting God, but he also was smart. And he went out there, and he didn't fight like him. He actually essentially took his skills that he had as a shepherd boy, and he fought against Goliath. He took his sling. He, he took that thing, and he, he picked up three rocks, and he whipped it at him, and he knocked him down in one shot. But he didn't stop there. He didn't want to just knock him over. He went out there, he picked up Goliath's sword, and he lobbed his head off. Now look at that storybook Bible you got for your kids. That's not in there. But he was not stopping until the champion of the enemy was dead. He had a victorious faith. He trusted God to deliver him, but he looks, but, <clears throat> but David looked weak to the world. Jesus is the same way. Jesus looks weak to the world. He doesn't defeat uh, his enemies the way that we do. Jesus defeated his enemy, death and sin and Satan. He defeated his enemy by dying. He defeated his enemy by trusting God through what looked like to the world him losing. He lost so that we could win. And so my question is, who do you look to? Who do you trust to model your life after? Like David, Jesus endured mocking and hostility from his fellow Israelites and from Satan himself. Jesus endured the cross by faith, knowing that the resurrection was ahead. He lived for then, not for now. And in verse 3 it says, if you're going to look to Jesus, consider, verse 3, him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Consider him, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. If you want to trust God, you're going to get mocked a little bit. And it's going to be okay. That's, it's, they're not mocking you, they're mocking God. Let it happen. Let it roll off your back. Don't argue. Uh, they're going to mock. Haters going to hate. But verse 4 says, You have not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. See, the Hebrew Christians were tempted to go back on their, their profession of faith. Because it didn't look like they were winning at life. They weren't get, having their best life now. At the time that this was written, if you were a Hebrew Christian, if you were a Christian, you were mocked anyway, and many of them scattered. But the Hebrew Christians were not only mocked by the world, they were also mocked by the Jews, that used to, their family. They were mocked by the people that they were from. They had lost all ties with the people that they considered important in their lives. And so they needed encouragement. And so the writer of Hebrews says, look to Jesus, the one who saved you, but then he said, also look within and make sure. He says, remember, you've not yet been killed. Some of these Christians had already been killed. That's why they were doubting whether or not they should continue following Jesus. Is it worth my life? And he said, you have not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. You're still alive. And like Jesus, you're resisting, but recognize that you haven't yet resisted the bloodshed. Don't give up. Strive against sin. And so, I have there for you. You're alive. Keep striving against sin. If you want to know how to battle against sin, go, go to Galatians 6. He talks about taking on the shield of faith. 
the breastplate of righteousness, putting on the helmet of salvation. This is our battle gear. We're not called to go mock people on Facebook. We're not called to argue with people in the public streets. We're called to show them Jesus by the way that we live. Not arguing, not getting upset, but, but instead promoting love by the way that we live. Even if it costs us. Even if people spit in our face. I don't know too many of us that have been spit in the face. Jesus was, and he endured. Trusting the Father that he would use it. And so, um, even if it could cost you, are you willing to follow Jesus? Are you willing to give up a relationship? A job? A promotion? Popularity? A reputation? Are you willing to go to jail? Many of the New Testament Christians went to jail and it's becoming increasing in our culture that if you're going to stand for the things that Jesus would have us stand for, you're going to be called someone that's a bigot or hateful. And yet, if we trust him and we hold up his standard, there's a reward. It's just not here. And so, uh, are you willing to lay these things on the altar even if it costs you? And I already quoted there from Mark chapter 5, better to enter to life maimed, having God cut things out of your life, than to have your whole body cast into hell. All sin hinders us from progressing in faith, but in this case, the sin that he's talking about was unbelief. I have there for you, unbelief was the sin that kept the Israelites, when they left Egypt, from entering into the promised land of Canaan. So they wandered for 40 years in the desert because... They were outside of the world. They had been brought out of Egypt, so they were no longer living in the world, and yet they were not ready yet to make the full decision to fully trust on, in God and go into the land of promise. And so where did that leave them? That left them in, on the fence. That left them on the fence. Have you ever tried to sit on a fence? It's not like Garfield. He stayed up there somehow because he's a cat. I don't know about you guys, there was like 10 years of my life where I understood salvation. And I went to church with my mom, and I did all the right stuff, and at least cleaned it up, even though I was hungover running the soundboard at the church we went to. But I had so much of the world that I couldn't give it up, and yet I had just enough of Jesus to where I was miserable doing the stuff I knew was sin. And God's called us to decide this day whom you will follow. You're going to follow your, the, the desires of your heart or you're going to follow Jesus. You can't have both. Get off the fence. The fence keeps you in the wilderness and the Israelites, the whole generation, because they didn't enter in, they died in the wilderness. They died in the desert. They were not saved. They were lost. And their children after them had to hear the law again And they were the ones to inherit the promise. Unbelief kept them in the desert for 40 years. God still blessed them. God kept their clothes from wearing out. But they died there. Unbelief can keep us from our spiritual inheritance in Christ. So what can we do? Trust the good shepherd. So, let's read verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation. Exhortation is just a word for strong encouragement. Which speaks to you as to sons. He says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. 
Look at this. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He corrects the sons that he loves. It says, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, then God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and you are not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. <clears throat> but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but it's painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, he says, strengthen the hands which hang down and feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. So who likes punishment? Who likes chastening? I would submit to you younger ones that your parents didn't like, they don't like it either. My daughter last night needed some chastening. She got her hiney whooped. And when I did that, she did not want it. Kicking and screaming. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know, not fun. But when it's done correctly, afterwards, there's restoration of the relationship. When we started, she was saying, no. And when we got done, she was saying, daddy, I love you. Are we good? You know, when it's done correctly, that's how it goes. Now, that's not fun for parents because we just want to chill with our kids. We only get so much time with them. But we're, we're, we're chastening them, not for right now so much as for then. We want them to learn that correction is oftentimes needed to get our minds right. And so our Heavenly Father chastens every child whom He receives. And He does it because He has the end goal in mind, our maturity. So, if we are not faithful to take off the weights when we get ready to run, if we are not faithful to say, Lord, I see this sin that you're pointing out, I'm done with it and repent of it. Guess what he does? He gives us a hiney whooping. And he loves us enough to whoop the hiney. Because when he's all said and done, it yields a pre peaceable fruit of righteousness if you will endure chastening. Here's what happens. Many times people come to the Lord, they have this emotional experience. They say, Lord, I trust you no matter what. And then he gives them a hiney whooping. And they say, you're not my dad, you can't tell me what to do. Right? And then when you spurn his correction, you're spurning his love altogether. He says, if you won't receive my correction, then you won't receive any part of me. And so he chastens every son whom he receives. So I have you, for you there Psalm chapter 23, verse 4, because it made me think of this verse where it says, your rod or your staff, they comfort me. So what's a staff? Well, I have one here because... Jesse, who's not here with us this morning, because he got married yesterday, they're off honeymooning, he gave me this a few years ago, and this is a shepherd's crook. You'll notice that there's two ends. There's the hook, or the staff, and then there's the rod. Now, I don't know if it was two instruments or not, so you guys, uh, those of you that know more about shepherding, you can teach me some stuff. But the staff 
this little crook here is for a little wayward sheep that likes to wander. And so the shepherd knows that sheep are better when they're together. So when they wander, he goes like this, and he pulls them back in. And he pulls them back in because sheep can't defend themselves. So they've got to be close to the shepherd. But sometimes wolves come in and predators. And so what do wolves and predators do to the sheep? They eat them. That causes them to be dead. So they're no longer good as sheep. A good shepherd does not let the wolves or the lions or anything eat his sheep. He protects them. So he will do everything to stay between them and their enemy. He'll take the rod and he will beat them off with a stick. And if need be, he'll wrestle them with his own hands. David said that when he fought Goliath. He goes, I'm not worried about Goliath. I fought off lions with my own hands. I'm like, this dude is a scrapper, you know. But what happens is that sometimes stubborn sheep get ex- they experience the rod. It's not meant for them, but they'll experience it. He'll use it to train the sheep. And when a sheep goes wayward enough times, it gets used to it, it gets comfortable in it, it will not stay near the flock, which means sudden death for a sheep. And so a good shepherd walks out to the sheep, finds it, and dislocates one of its joints. Does that sound loving? Sounds horrible. But what happens is that sheep can't walk anymore. It has to have the shepherd. So the shepherd lovingly picks up the sheep, puts it over its head like this picture here, and carries it around until that sheep is healed. The shepherd gets to know the, 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 the sheep gets to know the scent of the shepherd. The sheep gets to see the care for all the other sheep. And the sheep finds out, wow, I truly do need my shepherd. And becomes familiar. And he doesn't wander anymore. Because he knows that because of that correction, when I walk away, it hurts. And so his divine correction in my life is always hard to receive. A dislocated bone is not what I'm looking for. But God loves me enough to dislocate my bones because that's what it means to take in order for me to come back to him and trust him. His correction in my life is also oh so comforting. It's comforting. If, if you've never received correction from God, I would question whether or not you're his because he corrects us when we get wayward. So that's all I have for you this morning other than ways to uh, combat unbelief. Number one, the word of God. It always combats lies. Number two, prayer. Constant, just discussing things with the Lord, bringing things up, praying about things, letting him speak to you. I would encourage you this year, if you're a prayer, pray more, listen more. I would encourage you, if you're not a prayer, it's, it's, it's imperative that you become one. God wants to speak to you, and he wants to hear from you. And I would also encourage you, regularly gather with other followers of Jesus. Praise God with others who trust him. He'll give you perspective. And number four, confess and profess your faith outside of these walls. When you start telling people you trust Jesus, it'll challenge you to question yourself whether you really do or not. And then you'll be more likely to live more for him. So, that said, I'm going to leave that up there for you note-takers, but I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you for this passage.